Every who down in Whoville liked Christmas a lot, but the Grinch, who lived just north of Whoville, did not. The Grinch hated Christmas the whole Christmas season. Oh, please don't ask why. No one quite knows the reason. It could be, perhaps, that his shoes were too tight. It could be his head wasn't screwed on just right. But I think that the most likely reason of all may have been that his heart was two sizes too small. But whatever the reason, his heart or his shoes, he stood there on Christmas Eve hating the Who's. Continues to be one of my favorites, and I think a lot of yours as well. Because as a guy, I get him. He's poorly dressed. He's got really dry skin, large pores, chicken legs, hangs out in the cave, builds stuff, steals toys from preschoolers. Every man should be going, ah, 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 ah. You know exactly what I'm talking about, right? But I also get him for another reason, and that's because I am him. I am him. The narrator goes on in this story and says, The Grinch hated Christmas, the whole Christmas season. Now, please don't ask why. No one quite knows the reason. Oh, yeah, I do. <laughs> I know exactly why he doesn't like the season. And it has nothing to do with how tight his shoes are. But what it really has to do with is the condition of his heart, as it does mine. It's not the size of his heart that's a concern. It's the condition of it. And the condition of my heart and yours is what made the announcement of Christ's birth by the angel in Luke 2 so profound. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news that will, be, will cause great joy for all the people. Is this not the heart of the Christian message? It is. And for that reason, I think it needs to be unpacked. What's the good news that would cause great joy in the hearts of all people? Well, it's this, if I can encapsulate it. It's the news of God's arrival to save you and me from our lostness, from the utter corruption and ruin of our souls which are in bondage to sin. But here's the point that I hope you leave with today, that the good news is only good to those who know that they're not. The good news is only good to those who know that they're not. And that's why so few truly understand the joy that was being spoken of by the angel. Because this is not the season where the good news was proclaimed, and therefore should it not be the season where there is an amazing amount of joy. By the way, this is one of those penetrating questions which is very difficult to answer. But if I were to ask you, where are you right now, three days before Christmas, on the joy meter? It's like asking someone, are you happy? That's a real hard one to answer, isn't it? Well, more than any other time of year, and one of the reasons why I wanted to bring this message today is because joy is very elusive for me. Um, especially when I'm being 
inundated with songs 24-7 that tell me that I am to have a holly jolly Christmas, that it's the most wonderful time of the year, it's a marshmallow world, and uh, yeah, tis the season to be jolly. Doesn't it feel at times as though joy is something that's being induced? It's almost, it goes like this, if I hear enough Christmas songs, and if I listen, and if I whiff enough evergreen scented candles, and I see It's a Wonderful Life enough times, that maybe that I will experience some sense of nostalgia. But what I find is interesting is that the feeling is gone a lot quicker than the time it took to induce. I don't know, maybe you find that true as well. Because we're looking for something. We're looking to reclaim something that was once in our lives. That maybe there was a moment of joy that we did experience in some other Christmas that we really want to try to find again. And so much of the Christmas season, I find, I'm spending my time trying to rekindle that joy, but usually in the wrong places and usually in the wrong things. And I don't know if that's the way it is for you. But this time of year brings more than any other an anticipation of a feeling, the anticipation of an experience that generally is never realized. And usually if it is realized, it's, very, it's gone very quickly and only serves to heighten for me a sense of longing and disappointment, something deep within me. And it puts me in touch with something that's going on deep within my soul, which I can't ignore. I just can't. And I am under the assumption this morning that I'm not alone. And this message has been brewing in my heart for some time because every year I go through the same experience over and over again. And so I'm going to call on you to do something with me. I've had a chance to, to, to wash this over my soul over and over and over again. But I get to bring it to you today. I want you to listen to your heart. I want you to listen to your emotions today in the time that we have. Would you do that with me? Because I'm going to take you someplace which I think is going to be very hard for some of you. I wish it would be hard for all of you. But in a moment of brutal honesty, we have to admit that this season's emphasis on happiness on spending, on purchasing, on parties, on sentiment, on decor, on food, on busyness and Christmas programs, it falls way short of the deepest longings and needs of my heart. Have you felt that? I don't know. I do. But we, so we can't ignore emotions. One of the things that I read this past week, which really was profound, from Dan Allender, that I'd like to share with you. He says that emotions seem to be one of the least reliable, yet the most influential forces that guide our lives. Think for a moment. If you and I were to live and respond based on every emotion that we feel, where would you be right now? I'd be dead. Or in prison. Or homeless. Every feeling that I've ever had, if I chose to live my life based on what I felt, and responded accordingly, where would we be? So we have to listen to our emotions. We have to be aware of what we're feeling because it opens up questions that we would rather ignore because we want to think that all is well than truly probe the dissatisfaction and the emptiness of our soul. And where better to do that than here? What I've discovered and I hope to show you this morning, is that every emotion that we feel is actually a theological statement. Why? 
because every emotion is tied to something that we've believed. I want to say that again. Every emotion that we feel is tied to something that we have first believed. And I want to show that to you, that that is true. Because a lot of times we get that backwards. We believe that we believe what we believe because we feel what we feel. No. If you think about the emotions, especially the ones that, that are trying to gain a foothold in your life this season, both the good ones and the negative ones, you've got to trace it back to a belief. For instance, loneliness. Loneliness, the belief that I have been abandoned, that I am unloved, that I am undesired. Believe me, the last 11 years before I found Rebecca, do you think for a moment that I didn't struggle with that? That I didn't believe in my heart that I was alone? Undesirable, unloved, abandoned? Oh my goodness. <laughs> do you understand that? That's a belief, and if I choose to hang on to that, it will destroy me. But I have to look at that emotion, I have to walk through it to understand that that belief is a lie. What about anger? Every man in this room understands this, because ladies, we're not that complicated. <laughs> we feel angry about everything. It's a one-size-fits-all emotion for men. We don't even know half the time what we're angry about. But it drives us to make some really stupid decisions, although it could drive us to our knees as well. Anger is the belief that what I desperately need to find happiness is being withheld or is unattainable, or more importantly, it is being blocked by someone else. Driving, traffic, need I say more. There is some place I need to go, and there's someone in front of me that's blocking my goal. We feel anger all the time, and it sits right here until there's something that triggers it. And then we go, where did that come from? Well, I'm going to show you where that came from. Despair. More than any other time of year, when we are told to be happy, we are told to have a holly jolly Christmas, this is a huge challenge for us. It's, despair is the belief that the foundation of my sense of security and the hope for a better future will go unrealized. You have nothing to look forward to. Everything that you believe is going to bring you that sense of fulfillment and satisfaction in life will never happen. Can you imagine if we live from that place? But the challenge is that in order to know God, we have got to walk through despair, loneliness, and anger. I came in touch with an author that I had never read before this past week by the name of Thomas Merton, who was a Trappist monk, a Catholic monk, who lived in the early and middle part of the 20th century. And he said something that was profound. And if I could take everything I want to share with you today and condense it, it would be what he just said. And I want to share this with you. And I want you to sit and, and listen to this because it takes a while to really absorb it. He said, only the man who has had to face despair is really convinced that he needs mercy. Did you hear that? Only the man or woman who has had to face despair is really convinced that he or she needs mercy. Those who do not want mercy never seek it. It is better to find God on the threshold of despair than to risk our lives in a complacency that has never felt the need of forgiveness. A life that is without problems may literally be more hopeless than one that always verges on despair. We have to walk through this in order to know what the angel meant when he delivered the news to the angels 
This is good news which brings about great joy. But the good news has got to go through this valley of despair. That's why it has to be told, especially during this time of year. So my emotions act as though, as like a dashboard indicator light that goes on, and I have to give attention to it. I have to look within. I have to pop the hood, if you will, and look at what's going on in my own soul. And according to God's word, what is the true condition of my heart? Because isn't that what the Christian faith is about? It's not about hiding. It's not about living in the shadows. The word of God illuminates. The word of God throws its light on every corner of our being in order for us to live in truth, in order for us to live in the light because that's what we are. We are children of light, not darkness. It throws light on the hidden motives and the beliefs of the human heart. And when the Lord returns, we are told in 1 Corinthians 4, the Lord who comes will bring to, to, with him bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the hidden motives of men's hearts. Somebody once said that you, if you and I knew what we thought about each other, there would not be two friends alive. <laughs> the Christian faith is not about hiding, and it is not about ignoring negative emotions because we have to go through despair in order for us to appreciate what the good news actually was about. And I want to share with you two truths that we have to face today. Okay? You ready to go through these with me? I don't hear anybody, so I'm going to go ahead anyway. <laughs> Number one, I'm not okay and neither are you. Can we just start there? I don't care what you think is true about yourself. You are not okay and nor am I. There is something deeply wrong with me, in me, I was born with. Jeremiah 17, 9, many of you have heard this. The heart, my heart, your heart is, is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? There's something askew in me that I know very well, which the word of God has put me in touch with and I can't ignore. And my own experience lives that out. That's why the Grinch and why we've focused on the Grinch during this Christmas season as a theme is because he is a type of all of us. When the gentleman sings during that Grinch song when he's stealing gifts, he says about the Grinch, your soul is an appalling dump heap overflowing with the most disgraceful assortment of deplorable rubbish imaginable, mangled up and tangled up knots. <laughs> That's me. I know it. <laughs> I know what goes through my mind. I know the things that have come out of my mouth. I know the motives of my heart. But that's the first truth. There's another one that holds the other one in tension, and that is this, that I am created in the very image and likeness of my creator. Isn't that interesting? I am ruined in my soul. I am fully corrupted and perverted in my heart. I am sick, but yet I have been created in the very image and likeness of God which leads me to the great paradox of the Christian faith that we have to hold in tension. Let's go back to the Grinch for a minute, okay? The narrator says the Grinch hated Christmas. If you change Christmas to Christ, you have the foundation, foundational message of the Scriptures and one of the greatest paradoxes in the Christian faith, and that's this, that although I bear the image of God, my soul is desperately sick and doesn't seek Him. Did you know that you are not a God-lover? You were not born a God lover. Do you know that you do not love others instinctively, naturally? 
Did you also know that there's a very famous catechism that came out of the Dutch Reformed Church that many people have never heard of? Back in, in 1563, it was a form of catechism that was taught to, to members of the church in a question-and-answer format that was helped, helped them to understand the distinct doctrines of the Protestant church, which was very young at that time, not long after the Protestant Reformation had begun. In the Heidelberg Catechism, the question it asked, number four, is what does the law require of us? Now, you've heard this before. The answer is Christ teaches us in Matthew 22, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. Have you heard that before in this church? This is the greatest and first commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. But guess what? Now we have question number five. Can you live up to all this perfectly? The question asks. The answer, no. I have a natural tendency to hate God and my neighbor. See this up here? I do not love God, and I do not love others. This, is a, this condemns us because we can't attain it apart from God. We hate him. We are not born God lovers. We do not love our neighbor. We come into this world naturally antagonistic. That's why Francis Schaeffer described us as glorious ruins. We are glorious because we were created by God for the noble purpose of being his image bearers. Yet we are ruins because sin has marred the divine image we were designed to display at times seemingly beyond recognition. In Psalm 14, we read that the Lord has looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there are any who understand, any who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good. No one who seeks after God. Not even one. Here's what I want you to understand this morning. In order to know comfort, in order to know the joy that the angel delivered to these shepherds, in order to know comfort as a being made exclusively in the image of God, I must first see my sin-induced misery apart from him. That's what the Grinch represents. The Grinch represents who I am apart from the grace and love of God revealed through Christ. I don't come into this world loving God and loving others. In fact, according to scriptures, the only one I love is myself. I'm a self-worshipper. I despise God. I despise his word. I don't seek him. I want to be Lord of my own ring. I'm spiritually dead, the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus. I'm spiritually dead, I am spiritually blind, and I am spiritually ignorant. I prefer to serve and worship myself rather than serve and worship him. But not everybody believes this. That's why they can't come to that place of joy. I have a neighbor who lives several blocks down, never met, has a bumper sticker on the back of his car that says, hate is a learned behavior. Really? Really? I'm an elementary school principal. <laughs> I have preschoolers in my office because they had their fingers around another child's throat saying, die, die. That's where you're supposed to laugh because you get it. <laughs> it's okay. You can, you can relax. Where did they learn that from? We do not come into this world. We do not learn hate. We are born with it. 
That is one of the fundamental teachings of the Christian faith. And it's also an impediment to so many people coming to the Lord because they have to have something to repent of. Grandma got run over by a reindeer. I love that song. I am sick. I picture it in my mind. I just, the human speed bump. She forgot her medication. That's a classic song. Why do we find that amusing? Because we're twisted. Proof right there. All of us. One of my favorite authors who wrote a book called The Myth of the Greener Grass said this. He said, while anger, hate, and guilt bloom in the bassinet, love, sympathy, and tact require decades of study and tutelage. (laughs) At my age, you thought I'd get it by now. No way. I haven't a clue half the time what love is. But I understand hate. I understand anger. Why does that seem so natural to me? I tell you why, because I was born hating God and hating others. So here I am. If I left you with that, shame on me, because there is more to the message than this. So while I'm in this glorious but ruined and sinful state, God acted. God initiated. God sent. And who he sent changed me forever. Because he brought himself in human form in a way that I could understand him. And he brought two of the most important longings of my heart, which no human being can live without for long. Perfect love, perfect grace. But I have lived so long in my faith, I've never understood it. I've been taught it, I've been taught it, I've been taught it. But do I get it? Man, I'm stubborn. I never truly understood grace. I never did. In fact, I rejected it. I trusted Christ when I was five, but my understanding of what I was saved from, it escaped me. I've lived most of my 49 years as a believer under the illusion that I entered the kingdom under the good neighbor plan, as though the God grades on a curve. Never did I truly embrace the fact that I am ruined. I have nothing to bring to him, nothing. I came into the kingdom through a different gate than everyone else did because I never had that rebellious period in my life. But I deserved as much of God's wrath as anyone. The best word picture that I can think of is as though I was condemned as an innocent man to death, put in prison, wrongly accused, and then pardoned. And my response to that, big deal. For what? I would never have thought of myself as needing forgiveness because I didn't see myself as all that bad. His graciousness was lost on me because I did nothing deserving of being pardoned for. And that's what's changed for me. The sinner who's pardoned, spared from the death penalty, freely given eternal life, delivered from a life obsessed with themselves. They live from a different place. You've met people like that. How could you be so other-centered? There's only one way, because love does not come naturally. It's only because God has freed them. 
And one of the greatest challenges as well as the greatest impediments to knowing the joy that the Lord has given us has really been not understanding what an absolute ruin I am. Man, I'm slow. (laughs) This passage in Luke 7 has just taken me apart. There was a woman in the city who was a sinner. She entered the house of Simon the Pharisee, and Jesus was eating with him. And she started to do something very strange. She started to weep, and her tears were, would wet the feet of Christ himself, and she started to dry those tears with her hair. And then she began to anoint his feet with very costly alabaster perfume. And the Pharisee, as self-righteous as he was, he thought to himself, if Jesus only knew the woman that was doing this to him, because she was a sinner. And Jesus, knowing the thoughts of Simon, he said, Simon, I want to tell you a story, and I want you to answer a question for me. There was a man who lent money to two individuals. One man he lent quite a bit of money. The other man he lent a small sum. Neither man was able to repay him, so he forgave their debt. Which one of those two do you think loved him more? And Simon said, I assume, presume it was the man who owed more. And Jesus said, exactly. For this reason I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven her, for she loved much. But he who was forgiven little, loves little. I have never understood that until recently. That God, her love for him was a direct proportion to her ruin. She understood it. And Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. Go in peace. How I've wanted that, that peace all my life, even as a believer. But I've never gotten it until recently. And it's deep in my soul. And I hope it's in yours. Do you know what he's delivered you from? A person who's been cured from a terminal illness generally experiences a great amount of joy upon hearing the news that something dramatic has happened and they've been cleansed. They've walked through the shadow of the valley of the valley of the shadow of death and they've come on, out on the other side. The blind man who receives his sight, knowing the condition of blindness, goes his way rejoicing. That's where I want the joy to come from in my life. That's the good news. I'm not blind anymore. I'm not sick anymore. I've been healed. <laughs> So have you, if you know him. And C.S. Lewis, who just captures the essence of this so well in Mere Christianity, he said this, when you know that you are sick, you will listen to the doctor. When you've realized that our position is nearly desperate, you will begin to understand what the Christians are talking about. They offer an explanation of how we got into our present state of both hating goodness and loving it. Isn't that the great dichotomy? Isn't that the great dualism that we experience in the Christian faith? The two messages that we have to preach and hold them in tension. That I am destroyed. I have nothing to offer him. I hate him. Or I did until I realized what he did for me. He went after me. Do you know you're sick? You've got to start with that, folks. And I'm sorry to take you through that today, but you've got to know this before you will ever know the joy of God. Do you know you're sick? You know there's something wrong inside of you? Deeply wrong. That's why the good news is only good to those who know they're not. In Luke chapter 4, Jesus walks into his hometown of Nazareth. 
And he's sitting there. Can you imagine Jesus walking in here? You think you're going to give him an opportunity to speak? I would hope so. And he's sitting there. And they asked him if he would speak. And so Jesus stands up and he asks the attendant to give him the scroll of Isaiah. So Jesus takes the scroll and he unrolls it. And he reads this. He's reading it to us. He said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he appointed me, me, to preach to you the gospel of the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and, to re- and recovery of sight to the blind. To set free those who are oppressed and to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And then he sat down. Think about being in that audience. I imagine everyone was thinking to themselves, I guess Jesus is going to start a prison ministry. (laughs) No, he's speaking to you, and he's speaking to me. I am blind. I'm poor in spirit. I'm oppressed. I'm captive. My soul knows it, and so does yours. I'm not free. In Mark chapter 2, Jesus said, It is not those who are healthy who need a physician. Mm -mm. It's those who are sick. I didn't come to call the righteous. If you think you're righteous, if you think you come into this world loving God and loving others, you are sorely mistaken. I came to call sinners. I know my heart is sick, and it has been one of the most liberating truths that God has brought to me, but it has taken years for me to understand it and truly embrace it. Only through God's grace can I be made whole. Can I even decide and desire to love him? And just as I never truly understood grace, I truly never understood love. Love of God and love of others is not natural. Uh Uh-uh. I had to be set free to love him. I had to be captivated by him. I had to be undone by his pursuit and what he saved me from. Well, I'll tell you what is natural. Love of self. Paul told Timothy as he was about to die, as Paul was about to go to meet his God, he said, realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come, and the first thing he lists about the condition of his culture and the human race will be that men will be lovers of self. Do we live in a self-loving culture? Yes, and it's destroying us. Believe in yourself makes me sick to hear What is there in self but twisted wreckage? We are ruins. Have we not established that? In the same book by J. Allen Peterson, he wrote this. And hear me on this because we don't understand this. We're just beginning to scratch the surface. Love is the only emotion that's not natural. It's the only one that has to be learned and the only one that matters. Real love is a skill rarely learned before the age of 35. And when they, when we, speak of love, we mean getting it, not giving it. Do you understand how hard love is? Gentlemen, how well do you love your wife? If you want to raise the guilt level in the room, there it is. Have you died for her? Are you willing to? How many things have we done in a spirit of selfishness when we, when we call it love? We have Christ to look to, and I have not measured up to that. I deserve death and judgment in hell. But by his grace, he continues to say, Dan, keep going. 
Trust me. Keep your eyes on me, and you will love well, but only through me. A couple of months ago, I went on a retreat with sixth grade students, and we took some survival training. And there are some things you need to know before you go into the wild. And he called it the rule of threes that you've got to remember. How long can you live without air? Three minutes. How long can you live without water? Three days. How long can you live without food? Three weeks. Here's my question, which he didn't address. How long can you live without love? How many people take their life daily on this planet? Check out. They have allowed the emotion of loneliness, despair, and anger, utter futility, to, they are convinced that those go back to the belief that they are unloved, undesirable, unwanted. That is why the message of Christ is so critical. Because before a person takes their life, they've got to be convinced. Remember, belief is tied directly to what we, believe, what we feel. That they are all those things. And they will choose to end their life rather than live in the personal hell of despair and utter torment of soul. Not knowing that the good news has been proclaimed. That they can know joy and that they can know peace because of what has been once delivered to us. Thus the good news the good, rather, in good news. Perfect, sacrificial, initiated love is what I and what you cry out for this time of year more than any other and is what God delivered. Now I am able to love God and love others only because he first loved me. Only because of that. All other religions in this world have delivered a philosophy. Christianity stands alone because God delivered a child. Unto us, a child is born. Unto us, a son is given. Do you want to know what Christians are talking about this time of year? When you get rid of all the trappings of this holiday, you boil it all down. This is why we are proclaiming the good news of great joy. I want you and I to know the freedom that comes from a captive heart that has been released from bondage. I want you to know what it means to know joy before you leave here today. Because I guarantee you all the things that try to induce joy during this time of year are going to fall short. And the Christmas presents are going to be unwrapped in a matter of minutes. And I don't want to steal that excitement away from you. But understand this, that, that feeling you get after it's all over, what's going to carry you on? Because that feeling is not going to come around again for another year. God meant for us to know him, and by knowing him, to know joy. It's not because things happen to us, but it's because what he has done to us that carries us when the emotions fail to meet our needs. This is the good news of great joy. Anything that comes short of this announcement of God's deliverance from my sin and your sin-ruined soul is a false Christmas. It is like eating candy canes all day long every day. It will make you sick. It will not satisfy. So here's what I'm asking from you. I'm imploring you today. Before you unwrap anything this Christmas, I want you to consider something. This may be the only time in your life you will ever come this close to being free, to truly knowing what joy means and to who the giver of it is. I want you to think about receiving by, by faith the greatest gift that has ever been offered for the greatest need of a human soul the unconditional love and perpetual grace of God through his son, Jesus Christ. Will you consider that this morning before you leave here today? 
Will you choose before leaving the auditorium to believe, to trust, not in yourself, but to trust in Jesus Christ for eternal life? Jesus would have said the same thing today if he was sitting here. He would have said, the blind, the poor, the captive, the oppressed. I came that I might give sight to the spiritually blind. I might give freedom to those who have been living all of their life in captivity. He came to show us the way to the Father. He came to remove the sentence of death that is mine without my pardon, my deliverance from the one who has the right to judge me. Eternal separation from God. He came because of his great love for me and for you. And he didn't just talk about it. He did something. He made the sacrifice. He went to the cross. He bore the weight of my sin and that of the world on his shoulders. The pain of the cross was not the spikes. It was bearing the weight of the world. And for a moment in time, his father looked away because he is a God of righteousness and holiness. He can't look upon sin. And his son bore the brunt on a Roman instrument of execution. I deserve to be on that cross. So did you. He bled and died, but then he returned three days later. And we recognize that as the triumph. Why, why has Christianity endured? Because our author and perfecter of our faith is not dead. He is alive and he reigns and he gave us his spirit to live in us. But it is not something that he will give without inviting him and asking him to come in. If you've never trusted in the child that was given for us in Bethlehem, I'm going to ask you the most important question you will ever be asked. Will you trust him? Will you trust him today before you leave here? I'm going to pray as I close out. And if this prayer expresses what you want to speak to God today, please do not leave this auditorium without praying this to God and expressing the desire of your heart. He came to set us free. Do you believe that? And those of you who've been in a faith a long time, you know this is an ongoing journey, isn't it? <laughs> Thank God I'm not where I was before because he has changed me and is changing me. Would you bow your heads, please, before we go? And as I said, if this expresses where you want to be with God, if you want to come clean, if you want to be delivered from the oppressiveness of this world and know that the despair has a cure, that there is hope for the hopeless, would you pray this in your heart? Dear God, I acknowledged that I am indeed a sinful man or woman. I have a heart that's sick. It's in bondage to sin, and I desperately need a physician. But God, I'm also made in your image. I'm a glorious ruin. And in my ruined state, I will believe that you sent your son Jesus into this world to pay the ultimate penalty for my sin by going to the cross, shedding his innocent blood, and purchasing me through it. I know that you did this for me while I was a sinner, when I hated you, when I had no interest in you whatsoever. But now I see that because of your grace and great love for me, I can know you by believing in your son, trusting that what he did for me on the cross for eternal life and in him alone. I choose this day to believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross and rose again for my sins. I place my trust in him this day. And according to your very own words, he who believes in my son 
has eternal life. And I will thank you for pursuing me when I wanted nothing to do with you. Thank you for your Holy Spirit who you promised would take up residence in my life and walk with me until the day of your son's return. And I will give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to ask you to do something. If you, if you prayed that prayer, if you trusted in Christ and became a Christian just now, and you came with someone who is a Christian, would you tell them? Would you let them know? If you didn't come with a person who knows Christ, we would like you to tell somebody in our church before you leave. I've asked several of our leaders to come and be available in the front of the, the, the sanctuary this morning. Right up here, they'll be wearing name tags. They would love the opportunity for you to rejoice with you, to share with them what you just did, and also to pray with you, to encourage you, because now you've begun a journey. You need to plug in. You need a place to worship. This would be a great place to do it, by the way. And they would want to encourage you in your new found faith, because this is a new, fresh relationship with God. Would you do that? They'll be available right up front after the service. They'll have name tags. That's how you'll know them. I want you to have a joy-filled Christmas, but not because you got what you wanted. You got what you didn't deserve. Christ has come. That's why we celebrate unto us. Unto us a child is given. Unto us a son is born. Let's praise him today for his amazing gift. And let us see the despair in our hearts and let it lead us to the one who can free the oppressed. Thank you so much for being here. I wish you all a Merry Christmas. God bless. You're dismissed.